Right, uh, there's two great reasons why we've, uh, um, we've forged our way through the rain on this uh, wet and windy night on the last week of term for the last school of economics, which is why everything is so precious this week. The first is uh, Professor Ali Ansari of the University of St Andrews, I think has done an amazing, I followed his career with great, uh, great, um, great details, done an amazing thing. I think he's turned himself into one of the global preeminent experts on Iran. Uh, with, with a series of books, certainly as a professor of Iranian history and the director of the Institute for Iranian Studies at the University of St. Andrews, he's, I think he's pioneered the study of Iranian history in Britain and Europe. And indeed, he's done so uh, without going to the United States, which <laughs> which means he's paid a great deal less here than he would be there. But I think more importantly, he's done it through a series of excellent books, Iran, Islam and Democracy, published in 2006, Iran, uh, Modern Iran since 1921, Confronting Iran, and Iran under Ahmadinejad. So I think that the, we've got a series of really interesting, empirically detailed, but I think theoretically very nuanced books, which I'll say without any of my colleagues in the room. It's uh, amazing for a historian, um, but he was trained as a political scientist. And we're here tonight, I think, to celebrate the launch of his magnum opus, a book I've been waiting at least a decade to see printed uh, by Cambridge University Press, The Politics of Nationalism in Modern Iran. And uh, uh, this book was born, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying, during his PhD, and it's been rewritten and expanded ever since, and it's been some years since he got his PhD. So that's the first reason. And this book will be sold for £15, 20% uh, discount at the, at the start, um, at the end, after, at the front after he's finished which puts some pressure on him to get a half time here at Which leads me to the second reason why I'm very proud, and I, as I look across the audience, I see a, a series of very old friends. Ali and I did our PhDs together, and so I've been complaining about it for the last 20 years, I think. So, um, and it, I, I watched his rise, uh, his speed rise, as opposed to my much more slow and plodding one, with, uh, with a great deal, of, um, uh, great deal of admiration. So, without further ado, Ali's going to speak for about 45 minutes. As an old friend, I'll stop him speaking after 50 minutes, and he won't hold it against me. So, Ali Ansari, thank you very much. Thank you. I understand I've, I've, I've got to try and stand somewhere near a microphone, but I'm also going to uh, sort of stand on this side of it. Hopefully, it'll pick it up. I want to thank you, Toby, for that really rather over-generous introduction. It's uh, you sort of, in, in Persian, they would say, you know, Sharamandir. But I would, uh, I hope I can at least deliver half of what he said and make... Uh, a topic which uh, I have been working on for a very, very long time indeed, and in some part I've been jousting with Toby over some of the ideas that have finally emerged in this book, and one which <coughs> thankfully has finally seen fruition in this text, um, which I'm really going to try and give you really a, a sample of in this, uh, in this lecture. Um, Toby's given me 45 minutes. Uh, those of you who know me will know that that's probably wishful thinking, but I'm going to try and stick to it to make sure that we have some questions, uh, time for questions, because hopefully um, I'll have given you some, some ideas and, 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 and perhaps some things that you, you will no doubt disagree with. Now, I'm just wondering if we can turn that down slightly without me going completely... Right, I can see what I'm trying to say. Right, as Toby was saying, the politics of nationalism in, in, in Iran, really, from its inception as a, as a political movement from the late 19th century through to the current period, has been something that's fascinated me for some time. I've always been interested in the fact that nationalism as an idea, as an abstract concept in many ways, has 
has really gripped Iranians from all sort of political factions. And yet we often, when we're discussing it, have little real understanding of what we mean by the term. Far too often, Iranian nationalism has meant something way too abstract, but it's sort of devoid of the actual people who are meant to con uh, constitute it. You have Iran without Iranians in some sense. And I wanted to go back and actually look and see how this ideological construction of, of, of nationalism had developed really from, I suppose, the traditional understanding of it in the uh, end of the 19th century to, through to the present. And en route, to be honest, I had a number of ideas, a number of hypotheses. I always thought, actually, that the earlier period would be the easiest to do because I felt that uh, um, uh, it had been the most researched and the later period, of which I'm, I, I suppose I'm more familiar with, uh, would be something that I could spend more, more time on. But I found when I was going back to the sources that actually there's been a lot that's been assumed about early Iranian nationalists and, and nationalism in the, at the end of the 19th century and certainly the early 20th century. And for me, really, what was most revolutionary about this whole process was the events that happened in the early part of the 20th century rather than the events that have happened uh, subsequently. One of the things that um, really bothered me, I suppose, was the way in which the Islamic Revolution, the event in 1979, which has become such a central and seminal I suppose, a uh, moment in political science and the contemporary history of the Middle East, had in, in many ways completely perverted our understanding of Iranian history throughout the 20th century. So most studies of Iranian uh, history in this period normally really should be prefaced the causes and consequences of the Islamic Revolution. I mean, that's basically it. And they look back to the early 20th century and they sort of look for these roots and say, the reason we have these problems now is because so-and-so back in 1922 made a complete big zero of it or something or other. Now, this sort of, I think, grotesque determinism has affected the way in which history has been written subsequently. But more than that, it's affected the way, in a sense, that we've understood that earlier period. And a number of sort of myths in the, in the, in the non-social science term, I should say, uh, have emerged, which hopefully I, I've tried to address in this, in this work. Now, one of the reasons that this has been, uh, I've been able to do this in some ways has been the availability of sources. And one of the themes that will come through this, this talk is the fact that actually in the last 20 years, for reasons that I'll discuss um, in the talk, there's been a real revolution in the archival material that's been available to historians and political scientists on Iran. So many works of earlier ideologues and writers that you could have only found in scattered library collections, most obviously going to Iran, but maybe occasionally in other libraries here, say in SOAS or if you went to the United States, now, what you found in the last 20 years is a lot of these papers, collected works, newspapers, and other things, have been collated, edited, and published. And we owe, actually, this to one person in particular who was absolutely pivotal in doing this, and that is the late Iraj Afshar. So Iraj Afshar, in collecting these works and making them available, has meant that we can see, for the first time, the sort of collected works of many of these writers and thinkers, and actually, most importantly, put their writings in context. Because one of the problems we had was that key phrases and words and whatever and, and admonitions would be taken out, they'd be articulated, and they'd, inevitably this person would be condemned um, from something they said, but it was often taken out of context. So that's, uh, that's one thing that I really want to emphasize uh, as, as, as I enter into this. I'm going to say, for the, in the interest of transparency and given the audience I'm talking to, that uh, what my theoretical, I suppose, basis of my understanding of nations, nationalisms, and identities are. So I draw basically the two main thinkers on nationalism that I draw on are uh, your very own Anthony Smith here, although I should say the early rather than the later, and um, also obviously Benedict Anderson. 
You'll see other writers as well, and other thinkers, one, as you'll see, is Antonio Gramsci in terms of the notion of hegemony and uh, historical blocks. So I've tried to go, and I won't go into too much depth on that, but feel free to ask me uh, in questions if you want about where I've derived some of these ideas from, because clearly you'll see many of them are derivative. What I've sought to do is to apply these into an Iranian context. Now this first slide, I suppose in some ways, frames what I'm trying to talk about. This is a newspaper, this is the master of a newspaper published in Berlin between 1916 and two series, actually 1916 and 1922. It's the journal Kaveh, uh, based, titled, or named after uh, a mythical hero in Iranian mythical history, if I can put it that way, Kaveh, the blacksmith who leads an insurrection against Zahak, the, quote, Arab tyrant of Iran. And this uh, it's not a great, big, uh, it's not, the resolution isn't brilliant, I have to say, but here this masthead uh, shows Kaveh leading uh, Iranians towards enlightenment, I use that term deliberately, and it was written by a core of ideologues and edited by uh, uh, an editorial board led by Hassan Itagi Zadeh, who was a very, very important, influential figure in actually developing the ideas of what it meant to be Iranian. Now, that's in 1916-22. This, on the other side, is a statue of the very same carve put up by public subscription in the city of Isfahan in 2002. And this, in some ways, I suppose, tops and tails the talk I want to give, that we start at one end and we look at what's happening in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Now, in terms of an overview, can you see this? Is this too small? But let me go through it anyway. First of all, what I want to try and do is, is rethink our, 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 our debate or our discussion of nationalism as an idea. Because what I've tried to write about is not a history of Iran, per se, but a history of an idea. How did the idea develop? What were its interactions? How do you frame the debate? And one of the key things about it, of course, as I've already said, is the perspective. Do we take the perspective from 1970 backwards, a sort of a tautological approach, which I'm trying to throw out? Or do we start from the context of the individuals who were trying to develop this from a situation in which Iran found itself very weak as a state at the end of the 19th century, but also the context of Europe? Many studies of nationalism tend to see them as, a rise, uh, as, as rising uh, in an antagonistic relationship with Europe. What I want to say, and what I've argued is that they're defined by the vocabulary of Europe. That it's not an antagonistic relationship to Europe, but it's defined by a vocabulary that has been established by the European experience in the 19th century. And some of these they take, some of these things they don't. They negotiate this relationship, and that's important. Because what a lot of people have tended to argue is that these early nationalists tended to take wholesale all these ideas from Europe and just apply them willy-nilly onto Iran. This, when you look at the detail, is not the case. They actually engaged and negotiated these terms and ideas and sought even to try and translate uh, many terms such as constitutionalism, uh, such as law, rights, order, all other things, but trying to apply them in a much more meaningful sense to the Iranian context. In a, in a, in a very intelligent way, I found, in a way that was not purely uh, trying to emulate. So this, for me, was very important because, in a sense, what I was trying to say, that they made their own, own history, but not, obviously in circumstances of their own choosing it. It's these circumstances that interested me to see how they borrowed that. What I sought to do also was to divide the sort of the, 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 this um, ideational, this ideological sort of uh, development into three blocks. Not necessarily the best names, I have to say, although I like the first one and the second one was okay, probably due to Hobbesbaum. But the Age of Enlightenment, for me, was that period when Iranian nationalists sought or adopted appropriated ideas 
from the European experience that was shaped by the European Enlightenment. And I'll explain that in a little bit more detail as we go through, because we're not talking about a 19th century phenomenon. I'm really thinking of the 18th century phenomenon and different forms of enlightenment. I draw here on the ideas of Pocock and Jonathan Israel as well to see the Enlightenment as a much more multifaceted and cosmopolitan process. And it's this cosmopolitanism that's important because it's the cosmopolitanism that means that the Enlightenment, the, and I think sometimes when you attach the epithet European to it, it's, it's slightly uh, awkward, I have to say, because even those philosophers of the Enlightenment didn't see it really as a European phenomenon. They saw it as an international phenomenon. Yeah? And in so doing, they borrowed quite widely, actually, from the East. For them, there was a lot to learn from the East. They borrowed it in. I'll just give you one example. For instance, Pierre Bayle, 17th century French philosopher, who's talking about the philosophical dictionary. He actually makes it quite public. And, well, not public. It was a bit too dangerous to make it public. But he, he didn't hide the fact, in some ways, that he considered himself a Manichaeist. Now, why did he consider himself a Manichaeist? Because he said only the Manichaeist, only this dualism that comes from this strange Eastern religion, by the way, is one that can explain the rise of good and evil. He said Christianity doesn't work. And one of the interesting things about the 18th century Enlightenment, of course, are the polemics against Christianity. And the polemics against Christianity draw, not necessarily in a very coherent or intelligent way, but they draw nonetheless on ideas that they think come from Zoroastrianism as they understood it. I don't want to say that, it's, uh, that it was generally accurate. But this enlightenment is what shapes some of, the, um, some of the ideas in this period. And I think when particularly we have a look at the Shah and his, Muhammad Reza Shah, the last Pahlavi Shah, and his adulation for Cyrus the Great, you'll see that his depiction of Cyrus the Great is really as some sort of enlightenment philosopher. I mean, that's the sort of ideas he don't. We'll see a speech that he said, and you'll see the terms are very familiar. After that, you get a period of uh, in, in my reading of it after 63, although I don't want to suggest that these blocks are very uh, clear, there's fuzzy borders certainly, but in the age of extremes you get a sort of a radicalisation of the political process in left and right, the dominance in some ways of the left in Iran as well as the religious right. And so that liberal centre gets squeezed out. Okay, so this age of extremes, which if you'll notice I've been a little bit iconoclastic and I've said runs from 1963 to 1989, i.e. the start of the White Revolution through to the death of Ayatollah Khomeini in 89. And what I argue basically is that actually Muhammad Reza Shah's concept of monarchy, Muhammad Reza Shah's concept of monarchy, not his father by the way, and Khomeini's uh, concept of the jurist have some really rather unfortunate similarities in terms of their approach towards the divine. And then after 89, for reasons, uh, again, that will become apparent, but more to do really with social change, social change that is, has been catalyzed by these two earlier periods, you get what one of my colleagues actually gave me the title, because I couldn't think of a way to name it, but he said, why don't you go for contestation? Aye, it's a mess. So basically, there's a period when you have radical sort of interactions between different groups, and people are trying to sort of define, not simply from a state-led operation, which defines, I suppose, the first two but really, in the third period, you get the coming of age of the social movements and assisted by things like, you know, the, the revolution of mass media. So for the first time, actually, ordinary Iranians are beginning to actually sort of engage with the, you know, actually have a productive or a productive capacity in the sort of the production of ideology in that sense. And it becomes, in some ways, much, much more complex. In terms of one of the themes that I really try to look at is also the, 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 the changes in historical writing, the way in which history moves from one which you could call it sort of mythological historical writing, the development of the discipline of history, and the way historical writers tended to try and uh, articulate the identity of Iran. 
you know, obviously looking back to the ancient period or the Islamic period or others, and how these things... Are. A good friend of mine in St. Andrews always said that, he said, history in Iran is a little bit like history in the Soviet Union. They all know where we're going. What they're worried about is where we've come from. And so you'll find that actually what they're most fussed about in Iran is history. History is intensely political. And it's, uh, Iran is one of few countries where you can buy a text on the medieval period or the rise of Islam or the fall of the Sasanians or whatever, and it will come with a government health warning on it. Be careful what you read here. It might be dangerous. It's not the sort of thing we get here necessarily, although things can always change. So the two terms, I mean, the one that I would want you to basically look at is to say how we move from a sort of a mythological, historical background of the Persian epic poet Ferdowsi and his sort of the eulogies of the sort of mythological kings and how they sort of define identity and how to behave to a much more, uh, um, tra- not traditional, a much more modern conception of history um, and the restoration of what we would now term obviously the Archimedes. So it shouldn't really be from Ferdowsi to Sirius, it should be from Jamshid to Sirius first, or Jamshid to Kurosh if you want to put it that way. But these sort of narratives, how these narratives articulate with each other. Now, in terms of the Age of the Enlightenment, this for me is the most important bit. If you want to say, when is the fundamental revolutionary period in Iranian history in terms of state building and ideas of nationalism, it's the earlier period. And I always thought that when you looked at it, that this had been done, that we understand what's happened, they made mistakes, and we have to look how this has developed. In actual fact, if you go back to it, you find a much more nuanced picture and one that's much more interesting. You find that they derive many of their ideas. This gentleman is Pakizade, by the way, for those of you who are interested. Before he decided to discard his robes and put on a suit and tie, which he does fairly imminently after this. But what they do is they adopt an idea of constitutionalism, that is, uh, a state system based on the rule of law and the limitation of the power of the autocrat. It's one that is fundamentally tied to the notion not only of the power of the state, but the rights for the citizen. It's the construction of citizens. Okay? How did they get a lot of these ideas? Well, two of the things that I found very striking, and I draw derived from the writings in many ways of others. One is the consequence, in some ways, for those of you who know of the Babi revolt in the 1840s and 1850s, the consequences of the religious persecution of the Babis that then go on to become the Baha'is was something that had a major catalytic effect on many Iranian intellectuals at the end of the 19th century, very much as the wars of religion did on European intellectuals. And that was that, first of all, they didn't necessarily understand the notion that you could have a millenarian uh, movement in 19th century Iran, but that aside, the superstition that existed as far as they were concerned was not something to be proud of, but on the other hand, the level of religious persecution that took place and public pogroms that took place were also appalling. And for them, this was a catalytic effect in trying to rearrange the social order. But the Barbies also had another effect, and that was that the whole Barbie movement shattered the bonds, in a sense, of orthodox religious thinking. It said there could be an alternative. And many of the Barbies who remained in Iran were therefore very pivotal in shaping attitudes towards constitutionalism. But the other thing that's very interesting is Freemasonry. And that is all, and this is as true for the Ottoman Empire as it is for Iran, by the way. Almost every constitutional leader of note in 1906, during the Constitutional Revolution, was a member of a single Masonic lodge. The first Iranian Mason was basically inducted in 1807, and they became members of Masonic lodges because it was relatively easy for them to do in terms of their religious beliefs. It was also a means to get access to what we might call enlightenment ideas. So it was a means of basically communicating. And of course, 
Masonic, uh, Masonic uh, lodges or Masonic ideas required only that you believe in God. It didn't require any belief in the Trinity, so that was very simple for a Muslim to do. But also, funnily enough, if any of you are familiar with Mozart and others, of course, uh, Masonic rituals had a nice touch in sort of Zoroastrian sort of symbology in some ways. Not a bit made a huge amount of sense, but nonetheless, it always appealed. So Iranians could find something very attractive in that. Their appeal of the Enlightenment was, I argue, essentially an Anglo-American Enlightenment rather than a French Enlightenment. We see everything as basically derived from the French Revolution. Actually, what they're looking at is something somewhat earlier than that. It's derived from this notion of a republic of laws, a republic of letters, I beg your pardon, transferred or translated into a republic of laws. And they feel this very strongly and they want to engage in it. And central to this is this idea of civilization. It's not about modernity, it's about being civilized. And what do we mean about being civilized? It's not in the way that we would conceptualize it now. It's about civilization and manners. It's something that you can gain, you can acquire, and you can lose. And the Iranians, of course, feel a very particular place in the Iranian concept of civilization and enlightenment. The Iranians are not, although they're classified in some places in the, the tripartite classification that... Uh, European historians had of civilised, barbaric and, and uh, savage well, the savages are the people in the New World I'm afraid to say the barbaric are basically everyone else not in the Greco-Hellenic tradition but what uh, European writers found with Iran it was a bit difficult to put Iran into the barbarian category it didn't work okay, they said well Germans are barbarians which is a good thing by the way because Germans are the foundation of Europe but even, even then but uh, uh, what they sort of said for the Iranians was that, well, you know, they don't fit the model entirely well. So what really the Iranians are, and this is something that the Enlightenment thinkers picked up on, of course, the Iranian ones, is they said the trouble with Iran is it's over-civilized. And over-civilization means decadence. Decadence results in indulgence, barbarity, so on and so forth. The problem with the Iranians is that they are clearly part of a civilized community, but they have overdone it and they've lost it. The point is you need to get it back. And if you look at a number of European writers in the 18th century, they make it clear, particularly in, in, in this country, they say, you know, we, two, three hundred years ago, we were sort of savages as well, but we've acquired all these, you know, these manners of civilization, and look how successful we've become. So basically, it's a process. It's something you can acquire. And this is very important from a European perspective or an Iranian perspective, because Iranian backwardness is not a biological problem. It's a problem of... Education, in a sense, is a problem of manners and it's a problem of government. Okay, this is fundamental. It's only later in the 19th century that Europeans pick up on this notion of race in a much more emphatic way. But for Iranians picking this up, of course, the problem of the issue of race was not something they wanted to deal with necessarily, it's not something they acquired. But what they wanted to say, and a lot of Enlightenment thinkers would say this to them, is that basically this process of acquiring civilization is a process of politics and society, it has nothing to do with race. Okay, and this is a fundamentally important thing because it shows that you can improve. Okay? It's not something that you're born with. Now, I'll just quickly go through these here just to show where the, 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 the problems also might have arisen. One is this concept of authority and power. What they wanted was uh, the centralization of authority and authority that could, that could enforce the changes that were taking place. One of the mistakes they make, of course, is they confuse the centralization of authority with the centralization of power. And one of the big debates among these, these Enlightenment thinkers, if I put it that way, is that whether Iranian, the, the construction of the Iranian state in the, in the early 20th century should be on a more federal basis rather than a more centralized basis. Unfortunately, that argument about federalism has largely been lost. 
until now anyway, but it's largely been lost. Education is vitally important. It's all about education. It's all about educating servants. It's all about mass education. And this also has an impact, obviously, on language reform. And um, interestingly, when you go back to the persecution of the Barbies, in terms of crime and punishment, you have this very Foucaultian sort of notion that you've got to move away from physical punishments. That physical punishments, torture, these sort of things are not on. So, when you look at the area of Reza Shah, as a continuation of the constitutional movement, and that's what I try and argue, you see actually a lot of the ideas being developed in the constitutional period being implemented at this time of centralised authority and to some extent centralised power, of course. And you can see also in practice some of the positive developments, but also some of the weaknesses, some of the failures of that reform movement and how it didn't work out. The first thing first, which is very interesting, you look at the sources, is what they argue is they say that our attempt at constitutionalism has failed. It's failed because we don't have a government. We need a government to be able to basically impose these changes, and then we, have, we need a government that we can limit, uh, limit who, the, it, its power. But in the absence of a government itself, we have to start with good governance. And so what they go around looking, and they actually use the term, the term is actually explicitly used in, uh, in that journal, Carve. They said, what we need is an enlightened despot. We need an enlightened despot. And this enlightened despot will come and do the job he needs to do, and then he can leave. Enlight- that's the point of enlightened despotism. You do the job, and then you make yourself irrelevant. Of course, Reza Shah didn't quite think of it that way. But nonetheless, it's very interesting when you see how they, uh, how they justified and how they argued uh, for this change in, 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 in political system, in a sense. Okay? Now, what you have in this period is probably the most systematic from 1922, 23 through to about 1935, 36, the most systematic uh, and, and successful element of institution building that's ever happened in Iran since, uh, well, uh, since in the beginning of the 20th century. And you also have, obviously, um, corresponding with that, this notion of a nation building. And I'll look at these key areas that people have often um, uh, misunderstood or misconstrued. One is the issue of ethnicity and the question of race. Well, one of the things I found when you actually look at the sources is they did not buy the idea of race as a means of binding the Iranian uh, state together, the Iranian society together. Iranian nationalism was built, according to them, on two pillars. A common shared history and language, Persian principally. But it wasn't built on race. In fact, two or three of the most prominent writers argue emphatically against it. For them, the notion of ethnicities and race is a way of fracturing and breaking up the country. What you have to do is find a common umbrella in which all these groups can operate within. So Iranianism, as a cultural, historical, linguistic idea, is one that encompasses all. And, of course, some of the most prominent Iranian nationalists are Azeri. Okay, Ahmad Kassavi, Hassan Tarizad, and others are Azeri. And they argue very vehemently that in order to be able to have mass education, you have to have one language. You have to have a language that people can understand... And this is one of the arguments about language reform. We hear a lot about the fact that language reform was anti-Arab. In fact, their main problem was not against Arabic. Their main problem was against French. If you look at actually the literature, what they argue is a lot of these educated Iranians, they go abroad, they're being very fancy, they come out. I mean, talk to any Iranian today, you'll find, I mean, Toby always laughs at this, whenever we're talking Persian with friends, you know, there's a few English words thrown in, even maybe some French, and he thinks he can understand half of it, and he probably can. (laughs) There's a wonderful Iranian writer, Jamal Zadeh, who says, he writes this pastiche of Iran, he says this, uh, this account of uh, uh, a fake Austrian diplomat who goes to Iran, and he says, you know, 
I'm fascinated by this country. Everyone here speaks Esperanto. <laughs> he says, everyone, you know, they, they, it's amazing. It's the most progressive cosmopolitan country I've ever been to, right? Now, this was the problem. The problem they had was twofold. One is that Persian, Rajal Persian, in a sense, bureaucratic Persian, was far too complex if you want to start a mass education system. You have a similar problem in the Ottoman Empire, of course. So what you want is to start a mass education system, you have to simplify the language. It's not intrinsically anti-Arab or Arabic. It wouldn't work. Okay? This sort of stuff comes a bit later. What they're most worried about is the adoption of, of European words, and French above all. The other thing they very, get very anxious about is Turks. Okay? Not because they don't like Turks. I've got a couple of Turkish friends in the audience, so we all like them. But not because we don't like... But because, obviously, the Turkic groups in Iran were the largest, quote, minority. The Turkish Republic over in Anatolia was being very strongly Turkish nationalist. This was an anxiety for them. So they wanted to say, no, we all belong to one group. We all belong to one group. We don't deal in race. We don't deal in these sort of problems. We all belong to one. So they want to standardise but that doesn't, it's not the same as homogenize or the same as, you know, the centralizing that does take place in terms of the state. But in terms of language reform, there are sound reasons for why they wanted to do this. There are a number of examples of this, in fact, even in, uh, in the text you'll see, uh, where people say, well, uh, in fact, there's a wonderful time when they uh, bring a, a, a parliamentary bill in front of Reza Shah, and instead of the word imzar, they, they have invented a term, dastine. And Reza Shah looks at this and says, what is this word? And they say, well, your majesty, it's a new word that parliament has invented for your greater glory, and it means signature, I think. And Reza Shah's reaction to this is quite telling. He says, take this kalume mozahak. He said, take this ridiculous word, go and get it rewritten. If parliament wants to invent any more words... Tell them they've got to pass it by me first. And it's very clear. The most obvious one, of course, is the word that we all use, and again, it's one of those things that sometimes stares you in the face, but we never particularly notice, is Farsi. Farsi is obviously the Arabic for Parsi, because they don't have a P, but we still all speak Farsi. So, I mean, if they wanted to change it and they were very anti-Arab, they would have just changed it. In fact, the only time they've changed it is now, as far as I can see, but they didn't do it then. The most interesting thing for me is judicial reform. One of the striking things about this period for me, which characterises it at this age of enlightenment, and this is something that Abrahamian has done a lot of work on, is the fact that torture for political prisoners had been abolished in this period. It's very striking, actually, that in terms of an example of, of this sort of enlightenment thinking. And if you read in uh, Abrahamian's excellent work on tortured confessions, he has a number of accounts there where people, prisoners, say... We knew all these people are children of the Enlightenment. They actually use the term Enlightenment, therefore they don't believe in beating us up on a regular basis. You know, we just sit here and read our books. Quite different to what goes on afterwards, by the way. Quite different. The Shahnameh was still very popular. This is just a little bit of light entertainment in terms of the interlude. But it's, uh, the Shahnameh was popular in terms of its ability to create social cohesion in Iran. So what you had was the rise of a historical narrative rise of a, a change in history, in a sense, in Iran, the removal of the Shahnameh, this mythological history, as the orthodox history, its replacement by a historical discipline brought by Europe in many ways, but the Shahnameh remained a pivotal aspect of the nationalist project because it was seen as a means by which Iranian identity could be cemented. And it was so important that even the British thought it was useful propaganda during the war. This actually, if you look closely enough, 
is the story of Zahak, the, quote, Arab tyrant of Iran, uh, being overthrown by Feridun, the hero king. But actually, if you look more closely, and I'm sorry, it's not close enough, Zahak is actually Hitler. And the two snakes, I think, are Mussolini and Tojo. And, here's the best bit, Feridun is Churchill. So you'll see Churchill and there's Stalin and Roosevelt in the backup come to replace. So these were sent around as propaganda in Iran in the 1940s, and clearly there must have been a reason uh, they did it. But then we get to this second age, if I can put it that, the age of extremes. And again, I'll only go through some of them because I appreciate that the chair is probably looking at me rather warily. Uh, but uh, let me go through some of these points just to highlight what changes here and one of, one of the things that's important. One is that actually by the second, one of the distinctions, by the second Pahlavi, Muhammad Reza Shah, what you get is basically a marginalization of the Shahnameh in favor of the new history which is characterized by the cult of Cyrus the Great. And Muhammad Reza Shah sees himself, sees himself very much as bonded to the figure of Cyrus the Great. Why? Cyrus the Great as a liberal, enlightened king, Cyrus the Great as an emancipator. And I can talk about this a little in, in, in questions if you want, but in, in terms of an enlightenment narrative, a lot of enlightenment narratives were based on a myth of emancipation. So if you look, I mean, in the English version, it's the Magna Carta and so on and so forth. Here, suddenly the Iranians find someone extremely suitable. Cyrus the Great is a perfect example of a liberator. I'm going to sort of use him as... as, as, as uh, as the model. And of course it has a nice sort of ring about it in terms of myth and history because actually what we know about Cyrus the Great is very little. It does allow whoever wants to uh, uh, adopt him to apply his own ideas onto it. So what we have is Cyrus the Great with a charter of human rights, even though some of you uh, hopefully won't be too disappointed to know that this is something of anachronism if you want to call the Cyrus Cylinder a charter of human rights, but that's what the Shah wanted to promote. And then if you look, actually, at the speech he gives at the Tomb of Cyrus in 1971, you see terms that are almost taken literally from a sort of an enlightenment playbook. So to praise Cyrus, the extraordinary emancipator of history, he's the most noble sons of humanity. We promise to preserve forever the traditions of humanism and uh, traditions would make our people to carry a message, message transmitted, ever professing fraternity and truth. You know, it could almost be French Revolution. or you know, I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, basically what he's trying to put is, is Cyrus the Great as an enlightened, uh, an enlightened ruler. What you also see, of course, is the Shah developing both, uh, the last Shah developing both the concept of, 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 of race, which is a little bit, how should we say, a little bit getting a bit on the, uh, on the controversial side, particularly in adopting the title of Light of the Aryans, which is something that perhaps wasn't the wisest thing to do. But most interesting for me was, in a sense, the ideology that he developed. Whereas Reza Shah, his father, tended to follow from the constitutional movement and saw himself, for better or worse, as a constitutional monarch, actually, even though he tended to ignore uh, aspects that didn't like him, but he still saw himself as a constitutional monarch and was probably more pragmatic than his son. His son was highly superstitious. Highly superstitious, ironically, given that he was educated obviously, in Switzerland, unlike his father, and had this very weird... Well, very surreal notion of his connection to the divine. So he had dreams, he sort of uh, had this notion of destiny. And in the, in the text that you find about the uh, uh, ideology of Pahlaviism that is developed in this period, he develops this concept of empathetic monarchy. Now, empathetic monarchy is not constitutional monarchy. It is not limited by laws. It is limited by an ethics, an ethical relationship that the Shah has as a mediator between his people and the divine. Now, in that sense, the Shah is not limited by laws. 
And you can start to see the parallels in some ways with ideas that come later. There is no constitutional delimitation. This is the controversial bit, as Toby probably knows, as he's grinning at me there. Now, the next period that you look at is one of the consequences, in some ways, of the things that Mohammad Reza Shah's reign did do if he was very poor on political reform and the, uh, basically the consolidation of the achievements of the earlier age. And the key area, by the way, there, which I forgot to mention, is really in judicial reform. He doesn't complete the judicial reform of the earlier era. What he does do, however, is he pumps in uh, abundant money into education. And education has this basically coming of fruition of a generation... Um, of much more literate Iranians, much more educated Iranians, but also a generation that is now being fed by a new wave of technology. So for the first time in this period, what you're beginning to see is uh, a period um, when Iranians themselves, through this new medium of technology, are beginning to sort of, if I may say, sort of imagine their community on their own without needing the assistance of others. But nonetheless, these debates, and part of the consequence of this is the debates that come through are debates that see the Shahnameh as uh, an ideological sort of reservoir of Iranianness or Iranian ideas increasingly come to the fore and being part of the debate, both in the literati and uh, elsewhere. And in 1989, or 1988, I think it was, there was an interesting article in this uh, cultural magazine, Ardine, uh, which took... Uh, a lecture that Ahmad Shamlu, the Iranian poet, gave in Berkeley, actually in California, but it was all about the myth of Zahak and what Zahak meant for modern Iranian identity. Just to give you an idea of how these myths are used and abused, by the way, for purposes that are sometimes beyond me, but nonetheless you can see the relevance of this. Basically, what Ahmad Shamlu says, this, the narrative of Zahak and, and, uh, and, and uh, Kaveh is, is, is very simply one of a tyrant, a tyrant that is overthrown through an insurrection by a lowly blacksmith, who then restores the true monarchy to power. Feridun then restores the true Persian monarchy. This tale of emancipation, Ahmad Shamlu tends to reverse. He says, we, know, we shouldn't talk about Arab tyrants. This is all very unpleasant. And what they try to do, basically, for those of you who are familiar with these things, they keep saying, well, Zahak's mother was Iranian anyway. And all that. Bear in mind that all these are mythological characters, but nonetheless causes a huge amount of consternation in Iran. You'll see why, because it's politics, basically. It's politics. If you're talking about the Arab tyrant of Iran and the Islamic Republic of Iran, you can see where the analogies might go. Okay? So what you're trying to say is, well, actually, he's not an Arab at all. He was really half Iranian, and we're just bad to ourselves. But the point about Kave is that, really, he wasn't really a revolutionary. We don't want people to think he's a revolutionary. Actually, what he did was, it was Zahak who was the real revolutionary. He shattered the class system. Kave came back and restored the class system, and he restored sort of the Ancien Regime, and what a disaster. Now, I'll leave you in your own imagination to work out what he was trying to deconstruct there. But it's something that has gripped, funnily enough, Iranian lit literary circles. And uh, as you'll see, obviously, from this statue, when they put this statue up in Isfahan, of course, a number of very senior hardline clerics protested that this was a, an abomination and they should take it down. And they said, you know, but he's a revolutionary, he's legitimate, this is someone who overthrew a tyrant. And they say, no, no, he's not a revolutionary at all, he's a troublemaker get rid of it. So, but nonetheless, they couldn't do anything about it. But it's an interesting way of uh, uh, um, uh, the frictions that existed between state and society in this respect. Now, Cyrus makes a comeback. I just want to, yeah, I'll use this as one of the examples I have in the book. So this is Mr. Ahmadinejad, and this is Cyrus. Someone actually, there's two accounts. Some say it's Carver, but other people say it's Cyrus. 
And this was the, the, when the British Museum lent, and I stress lent, the Cyrus cylinder back to Iran, uh, this time around a couple of years ago, we have this figure dressed up in this, this paraphernalia, and he's been given a Palestinian scarf, which I don't know what. <laughs> so what's interesting about this is, of course, Cyrus now has moved from being liberal, humanist, emancipator, enlightened philosopher, and has, in a very real sense, become a member of the Basij. Okay? And, and he says this. He says this very clearly. He makes it very, he says, the trouble with Cyrus, Cyrus was a good Muslim. Now, you can make the case if you want, but it's, it's a difficult one. It's an awkward one chronologically, obviously. But there are, what he's trying to do is to merge these narratives and to bring Iranian mythology, in a sense, or Iranian history, you know, legitimize it, in a sense, into an Islamist narrative. You can say it doesn't really, it doesn't really work and there will be lots of uh, protests about it. But if you look at, at Ahmadinejad's statement, it's quite, it's quite fun as well. And Ahmadinejad got very weepy when the Cyrus Cylinder went back to Iran, I have to say. For those of you who have YouTube, have a look at it. When they unveil it, he's almost in tears. It is really the most iconic, you know, of course it's in the British Museum, so it is all about British, you know, political manipulation. They have this icon of Iranian identity sitting in a glass case. So he says, he issued a statement there, let me read some part of it, and you can see how it was. He said, as long as I am king, and this is Ahmadinejad, by the way, as long as I am king, I will not allow the people who are under my command to mock other nations, nor will humiliate those nations under my rule. He was saying that he respected other nations. He said, I will not impose my kingdom on any other nations, and I will not wage war, because they do not accept my kingdom. And then, he, this is the crucial, he says, we know that many nations asked him to rule them. Yeah, so it wasn't, yeah, it was, it was, the Iraqi case is quite interesting. Now. But this is actually what he did. Now, I found, and it's not in the book, because I only found this a bit late, actually. I found it where there, it's actually from Xenophon. This is all from Xenophon's Cyropedia. So for those of you who, you can see that Ahmadinejad's got his historical advisors have got it quite wrong, haven't they? It's this called guff from a completely fictitious Greek account of Cyrus. But he's taken it. That's where it's from. It's almost from the first page. And this is what he thinks it's about. But it also tells us more about Ahmadinejad. And this is what I'm trying to say in the sense that they appropriate these historical figures and then impose on them what they think they should be. And in this case, you know, obviously a champion of the Palestinians. Okay? But the mythology is extremely... Um, the mythology that's returning is extremely powerful. I haven't talked as much as I would like, because I'm acutely aware of the time, in terms of this conflict, this narrative uh, uh, contest that takes place between sort of the what we would call a, the discipline of history and mythological history. But mythological history makes a comeback, and it makes a comeback because of this popular element to it, that ordinary Iranians, in reacting against the Islamic Republic, begin to go back to their, uh, their, the, the, the myths that ground them, as Paul Ricoeur might say. In times of crisis, they look for something to, 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 um, um, that's familiar to them. And this comment, by the way, for those of you who can read it, I'll let you guess who said that, but some of you who've heard my talk before will know exactly who said that. But this is a, where he says, you know, mythology describes the spirit of various nations and there is no nation or people whose history is free from myth. Of course, in conformity with the weight of civilization, of course, is an Iranian speaking, by the way. In conformity with the weight of civilization, the history of the nation, the myth of the nation is deeper and more complicated. And civilized nations usually have myths. The ethical myth and the myth epic indicate the spirit of Iranians. The Book of Kings is the symbol of Iran. And this is a television series that was made, that was by President Khatami, by the way, that was made at the UN. And it's revealing. Khatami is the last sort of example that we have of the Enlightenment politician at work. And you can see it's replete with that civilization and all this sort of stuff. But this series is quite interesting because it was a, a, and I'm very grateful to a colleague for having drawn my attention to it. 
It was a series, a television series in Iran, are immensely long, I have to say. It's a 40 part series. So I didn't watch all of it. But it's a 40 part series, and it's all about really the sort of mythology of Iran and the Shahnameh. And these figures are, um, uh, I think that's Rostam at the bottom there, and I, I think that's Isfandia. Or I don't think it's Seabush, I think it's Isfandia. And uh, um, it has an element of the Lord of the Rings to it, actually. It's quite fun to watch, for those of you who like the Shahnameh and the Lord of the Rings. There's a thesis there to be written on. So, anyway. <laughs> the, uh, the, um, the wonderful thing about this is at the end of it, in order to get past the censors, at the absolute end of the film, you have um, a, a picture of Imam Ali, the first Shia Imam, and he's walking, you don't see his face right now, he's walking in this sort of this, this marsh with his you know, trusty stick and his cotton and white. And he walks along, and the, and the voiceover says, who, who will come to Imam Ali's assistance in his time of need? And then, lo and behold, out of the reeds come all these Persian champions of old on their horses, saying, we're here, Imam Ali, we're coming out. And the whole point of it, of course, is to say that the myths of the Shahnameh and our Islamic identity are one and the same. We're all part of one ethical narrative. I don't think it works, actually, I have to say, in every case, because of various reasons of reality that we face, but there you are. Now... But none of this is an attempt. Just some concluding thoughts on this lovely picture, which a friend of mine in Edinburgh showed me. This is a man praying in front of the tomb of Cyrus. You can't get better than that, can you? It's Cyrus as the prophet king, basically. And I've heard it many times in Iran that Cyrus the Great actually is a prophet. There was a wonderful moment when the current, one of the, Mr. Ahmadinejad's closest uh, allies, and it's, this is, I'll say this for Toby and Gareth's sake, because they'll enjoy this. Um, <clears throat> Mashay was accused, this is Ahmadinejad's ally, who's very much into the sort of Iranian school of thought. They, they accused him of saying the Prophet Muhammad was Iranian, which is the nice And he said, I never said the Prophet Muhammad was Iranian. I said the Prophet Abraham was Iranian. Now, that's, that's <laughs> even more severe. Now, what is he saying when he says that, of course? What is he saying when he says that? He's saying the Prophet Abraham came from Iraq or Mesopotamia. And that's part of Iran. So there you are. And it's part of a mythical era. It's Iran Shah. Yeah? Iran Shah, the empire of the Aryans, the empire of Iran, is framed by the Oxus, the Indus, uh, the Euphrates, not the Tigris, the Euphrates, and the Caucasus. And so for Mashari, what he's saying is he doesn't, it's very cheeky, obviously, what he's saying, but what he's saying he thinks has some sort of logic to it. Okay? So you see this, this marriage of ideas. But just to, and I've gone through this pretty quicker than I did on a previous occasion, so take me open me, please. Um, and I've probably missed out on lots of stuff, by the way, but let me just quickly go through, because there's things that I haven't sort of said, but maybe some of the conclusions I want to come at. One is this notion of essentializing narratives. I really want people studying Iran, in a sense, to move away from this notion that the pivotal and seminal moment of, uh, of modern Iranian history is the 1979 revolution. It isn't. It just isn't. And if you look at you know, the changes that have taken Almost everything that was built in the period 1906 to 1935 has lasted. It's still with us. It's not doing well. It's on sort of life support, but it's there. Okay? And that's the interesting thing. Most of the things that Muhammad Reza Shah did in a superficial sense have been removed. But most of the things his father did as, as a product of the constitutional movement have stayed. Okay? Conscription, taxation, bureaucracies, the works, they're there. So this idea that 1979 is the pivot I want to banish from your minds. I want us to sort of think about, or I'd like to, to, to posit the suggestion that 
that many of our un understandings of Iranian history from the present to the past have been shaped by narratives and ideological narratives that are either heavily influenced by the left, and this is where you get a lot of the anti-imperialism and other things coming in, but also by uh, the religious right. The religious right have had less of an impact, actually. The left and Marxist historiography has had a tremendous impact on the way in which Iranian history has been understood. It's the only reason why the Russians are not perceived as bad guys in Iranian history in the popular folklore, whereas the British and the Americans are. If you look historically, the Russians have done much more damage to Iran in the last 150 years. Much more. And yet, in the official discourse, you hardly get a mention of it. In 2009, you did a bit, but that was popular outrage. Part of this is a consequence of the fact that the Soviet Union, as sort of the, the champion of, of Marxism and communism, whatever, was somewhat sort of written out of that, the bogeyman of Iranian history. So the state, as I said, was very much a product of the earlier period, that the relationship between myth and history is a much more complex dynamic than we would suggest. I've touched on that really, perhaps not as clearly as I'd like to, but perhaps you can ask. The key thing I suppose I want to argue here is the notion of race and ethnic national. And race was not a feature of Iranian nationalism in its inception. It was acquired partly as a reason of the transition, as Smith might argue, from a lateral nationalism into a demotic nationalism, i.e. the popularization of nationalist ideas, radicalized them, simplified them, vulgarized them. And the problem of many Iranian nationalists was simply this. We have to educate our masters. But to what level? And if we educate everyone, are we going to be able to raise them, to, you know, to turn them all into wonderful sort of humanists? Probably not. And what you find, actually, is a radicalization of interpretations that backfired on many of these nationalists. Karizadeh, in particular, was constantly being misunderstood, and he always complained he was being misunderstood. But it's partly because he wasn't communicating with the masses. He was communicating to the elite. He was an Enlightenment philosopher in his own way. He, had, he was an elitist and a snob. And as much as he wanted to educate everyone, he got consistently frustrated that nobody understood him or the nuances of what he wanted to say. And among the nuances was race doesn't work. Race as a basis of Iranian nationalism doesn't work. You can't be the crossroads of civilizations and think that you are part of a pure race. It's mumbo-jumbo. And yet, later nationalists, some of which have never actually been in Iran, I have to say, aspire to a sort of an Aryan mythology which is rather damaging. Of course, the communication of nationalism and the popularization has, this is one of the reasons why mythology has made a comeback, of course. Myth is a much more convenient way and an easier way to impart national ideas in a way than uh, um, uh, sort of hard-nosed positivistic facts, if I can put it that way. Uh, it just isn't interesting enough. So myth has this, has this role. For the future... You know, what I'm interested in, I suppose, is this sort of synthesis of these two approaches. That for the first time, because of the social revolution that's taking place in education, you're beginning to see not only the top-down, but the bottom-up approach to shaping identity. But it's very much a work in process. I'm quite convinced that in the long term, of course, as symbolised by this wonderful picture, that actually nationalism, however it's defined, not necessarily positively, is and will continue to be the dominant ideology of modern Iran. Thank you very much.
to thank Ali uh, for doing three things that I hoped and was fairly certain that he would do. Uh, the first is I think it's an incredibly bold and I think ambitious and widely ranging lecture, but also to realise, and I think he realised it through a very rich and depth empirical study with uh, a great deal of kind of theoretical and philosophical deployment. But the one thing that has completely amazed me is he stuck to time. <laughs> and secondly, if I was still teaching, it's a good job I'm not teaching really sister anymore, so I'd have to completely rewrite my lecture. And <laughs> but we won't go there. We've got over half an hour for questions. I ask of you one thing when you stand up, when I, when I catch your eye or your hand, uh, could you say who you are? And I demand of you, you ask a question and only one and not a statement. <laughs> so who'd like to ask the first question? Oh. I was just wondering, what role do you attribute to kind of foreign influence and foreign domination in Iran? So Russia, England, and then into Second World War um, in creating this kind of sense of an Iranian, or do you think that that wasn't really present? No, I think it does have. I, d I think it does have a very important role, particularly in, say, if you look at the Constitutional Revolution, and certainly the ideas, I mean, the ideas come very much from... Uh, a Western, I wouldn't say necessarily, I mean, it, 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 it's complex in the sense that even a lot of the French ideas that may come through come through Russia, by the way. I mean, it, it's, it's a, it, but it's, it's an 18th century rather than a 19th century sort of Enlightenment narrative that comes in. And they adopt these. Now, one of the reasons they adopt these so easily is because they see them as very cosmopolitan. They don't see them as necessarily European. They see them as a matter of civilization. And the Europeans sort of treat the Iranians with a certain amount of respect in this sort of way, much more than they do, say, the Ottomans uh, in that sense. They see the Iranians as somewhat closer to them. But that's clearly there. Where I dispute, really, the argument is to say that it's, it's that the state formation or the ideas of nationalism are done uh, in an antagonistic relationship with foreign powers. I think you see that much more clearly after 1951-53 with the rise, obviously, of the oil nationalisation and also the rise of the left in Iran. I mean, this is, you know, Mossadegh is very interesting as a character because if you look at Mossadegh and you look at the people around him, what they're arguing, really, what their principal aim is, is not really about the demolition of the British or this or that or the other in Iran. It's about the conclusion or the, uh, the fulfilment of this constitutional project. For them, and Cartusian makes the case very clearly, actually, on this, he says, basically, that... Uh, the nationalisation of Anglo-Iranian oil was a means to an end. It was never meant to be an end in itself. The whole thing is not meant to be, you know, they don't want, they say, the British to leave, or they don't want the British... But they want a change in the relationship, and they see this as an, a means of empowering themselves. Now, as a result of the coup, and of course all that, that sort of dynamic changes, and that's partly also that result of that radicalisation. But it's not entirely down to that, and what I'm trying to avoid, really in terms of narratives of Iranian nationalism, is to see everything as wholly dependent on the actions of foreign powers. Clearly, in any sort of globalised community, and one in which obviously the Russians, the Americans, the British and others all had a sort of a, an engagement with Iran for good or ill, these, you know, they're going to have an effect. But it's very interesting to see how the earlier nationalists... Um, had no problem in adopting some. I mean, this wasn't an issue, but how they adopted it was different. They didn't want to adopt the ideas of race, as I said. A lot of European nationalists would say, you know, this is a racial thing, and they'd say, no, we're not interested in that. But what they were very interested in were European ideas, and David Hume is one that they were very keen on, that were contrary to sort of superstition, as they saw it. They attacked superstition in one. I mean, there's a wonderful article where someone says that one of the Iranian nationalists actually invented a letter 
from David Hume to the ulama, which didn't exist, obviously. But, I mean, you know, they wanted to, they thought Hume was sufficiently of gravitas to go and tell these ulama to start behaving themselves, basically, stop being so superstitious. So that's all there. But I think, and you'll see it in the Constitutional Revolution, there's no doubt, I mean, the British play a very, very pivotal role in the Constitutional Movement. Um, and clearly, you know, that sort of the role of foreign powers affects the way in which Iranians um, uh, shape their, uh, their state and identity. Now, I think, for me, the clearest one is what Kassabi would have said, and Kassavi was always very much you know, staunchly nationalistic in, his, in his, uh, his development of the state, but always criticised some of his compatriots by blaming everything on foreigners. He said, the way you deal with this is you build a state that foreigners will respect. And if you build a state and society that foreigners will respect, they won't treat us like this anymore. But you can't keep blaming them for everything. Do something about it. And I think that model is really much more the Enlightenment sort of conception that I see. Exactly. Uh, yeah, um, Brian Schroeder, um, excellent on the street. Oh, excellent. Um, but it's interesting, and I'll talk about it. I'm going to need to go far. Your comments just in this uh, response and your comments earlier about the um, increasing uh, superstitiousness of the uh, Iranian regime before the revolution not only struck me as being uh, rather coincidental with Nixonianism. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. Well, the show I'm mixing were good chums. In which he said, you know, when the president says something, it's yeah, yeah. not a crime. Um, it seems very uh, consistent with the trend in Iran. But did that trend in Iran leave a legacy after the Shah left that left the population um, predisposed towards accepting <coughs> claims of superstitious power and authority that made the Iranian revolution easier to swallow? Well, I, I mean, that's one of the arguments I have in the book. Basically, yes, is that the Shah, by, you see, in the Shah, most historical books, including my earlier renditions, I have to say, will say, you know, the Pahlavi regime is a sort of a block, so 1921 to 1979. But actually, if you look at the political philosophy between the two sides, it's quite different. So Reza Shah is, a, I would say, he's very pragmatic, you know, got a problem, shoot him. It's not a problem. Mohammed as a show, you know, let's go and have a dream, and, you know, let's wonder what's happening. You know, it's all that, and then, you know, I said the others have a dream and shoot them. But, I mean, this is the, this, uh, this, uh, this lot is basically, Reza Shah was very pragmatic in that sense. He didn't take any nonsense. Uh, it's very striking. You look with Mohammed Reza Shah, almost every diplomat that comes, they say this, this, this man is extremely superstitious. He's very keen on conspiracy theories. It's all over the place. Now, for my part, when you look at the conception of monarchy that is developed around him, it's a lot about this divine mandate and all this. And now, it's not half as bad as you get now, by the way, but it's there. It's certainly there. And he has this sort of fatalistic aspect. And this is part of the problem in the revolution, of course, is that he gets into this fatalism and he thinks it's over and that's it. Which is always interesting. You compare the, the, one of the points that come, comes out when, in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, of course, I just... Um, work that was done in Iran in, in the 1990s, uh, which was suppressed but has since come out, is that basically the total number of casualties in the Islamic Revolution uh, from, well, when the, if you think of the Islamic Revolution from 1963 to 1970, January 1979 to when the Shah left, is 3,164. I mean, it's nothing compared to what you're seeing now. Okay, now the Shah basically dropped the ball in that sense. Okay, and he dropped the ball because uh, I think he was extremely superstitious and extremely, you know, surreal in some ways. This obviously facilitated what happened afterwards. And one of the themes I have is that the Shah saw himself as this sort of uh, uh, 
religious, esoteric, divinely mandated ruler, most people didn't buy it, and they went for the real thing. And so Khomeini came in, and he fulfills the role much more authentically than the Shah could ever do. Um, Khomeini, of course, sold himself very much as a constitutionist, by the way. That's very interesting. When you look at it, he says the law. It's all the law. It'll be a religious law, but it's the law. Uh, but then when you look at it, actually what they do is a lot of sort of esoteric mumbo-jumbo about the hidden imam and so on and so forth, which has really reached its apotheosis now. I mean, this is what's quite extraordinary, that what you see now is a highly superstitious culture in Iran, um, and it's one that's encouraged by, by the leadership. It supports their sort of uh, power. Um, and it grates with an educated public. It grates them very, very badly, but... Even the educated, I have to say, have a tendency to do superstition. I mean, you know. Uh, so it's there, and I think the roots of it are, basically, in the, in the flaws of Muhammad. He did not complete the project set up by his predecessor. And that's a great pity. Let me pick up on that and bring it right through to sure. today. I mean, yeah. you've, you've touched on it and hinted at it, but not elite nationalism, but where does popular nationalism stand now? What are its visions of the world, its influences... And after the suppression of the Green Movement, where do you think it's going? Well, the popular nationalism, and what I said, is symbolised in some ways by that picture, that you, know, you have this sort of marriage of sort of, you know, that Cyrus is a prophet, and therefore everything becomes highly Iranian. It's not, you know, there is a, there is a and you'll see this in this upcoming election, I'll put that in inverted commas, but what you see is, uh, you know, that uh, Ahmadinejad and Masha are trying to play on this Iranian nationalism very much, and try to say, you know, it, and they, I mean, hilariously, he's now said, you know, Mashari is the spring. He keeps using the word spring as if people were connected to the Arab Spring. So there is this sort of, there is this uh, adoption, really, of very overtly nationalistic um, uh, uh, symbols. But to my mind, it's also very vulgar nationalism, if I can put it that way. And what they're using in a, in a state level is, is really something to try and... Um, uh, you know, to use and abuse for the, for the pursuance of their own particular interests. I don't think many people necessarily will buy it, but nonetheless, it plays rather well. And, of course, the current confrontation with the United States and the international community also plays into that rather well. There's a wonderful... I don't know if some of you have seen it. Some of you may have seen it. There's a video that someone's made in Iran about an impending war between the United States and Iran in 2023. Anyone seen this? It's quite interesting. It's obviously computer graphics galore, I have to say. And I have to tell you, the Iranian Air Force is really quite impressive in 2023. And the voiceover says says something like, despite decades of sanctions, Iran becomes the superpower of the world, blah, blah, blah. And for some reason, the Americans... I can send you the link, actually. For some reason, the Americans are planning to launch a missile at Iran from Antarctica. I don't know why. (laughs) And and that's replete full of this sort of national jingoistic, um, bombastic notion that somehow we're going to survive, we're great, we're powerful... And, of course, many people in the regime will try and pander to that. There's not much Islam in it. There's elements of it. He sort of consults the Quran before he you know, goes off and lops off the Americans or whatever. But, you know, a lot of it is very nationalistic. And that's, you know, one of the problems is, is that, and I think you, you will have seen it also in the Iraqi context, of course, is that you find a very chauvinistic nationalism is emerging. Very chauvinistic. I mean, some of the stuff is quite racist among the young. I mean, you, there are two... You know, I've seen some of it in Los Angeles, funnily enough. I mean, that's probably quite strange. But, I mean, there are some among communities there where they can be very Aryanistic. And you can see some of it in, in, uh, in Iran itself. And the Germans find it quite awkward when the Iranians keep greeting them with, you know, you, you, are, you and us are sort of brothers. And, 
<laughs> Don't worry about World War II. We all make mistakes. And so which is not, which is not, you know, but it, it happens. I mean, I, I spoke with the Oscar Fisher told me at one stage. He said, I found it very striking that this cleric comes and talks to me and he sort of says, you know, salam alaikum and all this. And then he says, you know, we Aryans need to sit. And he says, well, you know, I mean, it's, not, you know, it's not something that they, the Germans are entirely ready for. So there is, a, there, is a, there, is a, there is an issue there. There is an issue that chauvinism there. Tachizad and the others had a very good term for it, actually. They always used to criticise at the time. They said there are real nationalists. This is a lovely. Real nationalists, and then there are professional nationalists, the ones that pout all this stuff, but have no idea what it means to be Iranian, which was, again, this environmental project. All this is paraphernalia, superficial mumbo-jumbo. Yes. Hi, uh, Caroline Gutman. I'm a master's student here. Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, in terms of the nationalism, you talked about the adoption or, or use of nationalism by Ahmadinejad as being a tool for, you know, domestically and mobilizing the population. But how do you think it actually affects uh, foreign policy of Ahmadinejad and Iran in general? Makes them more bombastic. I mean, Ahmadinejad is a millenarian in the sense that he mixes religion and political ideas almost willy-nilly. I mean, he just uh, it doesn't make sense, but that's not the point. And he puts it all together, and he, he has this bombastic style, and he knows, I mean, what's interesting to me is they know that the nationalism sells. You know, there's a, there's a phrase, the Iranians will know this, there's a phrase that they used to use very very commonly in Iran in the 80s, that Islam dar khatarast, so, you know, Islam is in danger, and everyone goes, oh, you know, we must go and send our, go to the front and beat up Iraqis. And but I don't think this sells anymore in Iran. I think actually what sells in Iran is Iran dar khatarast. Iran is in danger. And this is what they're aiming at. They need people on side. They basically made a mess of the economy. They made a mess of the republican institutions of government. The only thing they've got left, and the religious stuff is, you know, only appeals to a certain group. They're not all into it. And so what you've got left is nationalism. And nationalism has this wonderful capacity, of course, of bringing in the diaspora as well as people. In Iran, and it's a, it's a. It, I talked to someone about this who operates for the, on, who, who serves for the Iran nuclear thing, and you could see that for him, the nuclear crisis had real merits because it's something all Iranians could agree on. He didn't have a problem. You don't have to talk about Valeta Fari, you don't have to talk about Islam, you don't. Have to, but we can all agree that you know we have the right to enrich uranium. If you're in Los Angeles or London or Berlin or whatever, we can all agree. It's something, and he felt quite good about it. You know, it's the one thing I can be an Iranian diplomat about, and everyone likes me. You know, I mean, it, and, and it, it, this sort of thing is basically what they use it. You know, because it allows them to. And it's their last gasp. Whether that sense, you know, patriotism or whatever, the last refuge of the scandal. I mean, this is basically, you know, what it is. Ironically, when you look about the concept of rights, it doesn't exist. You know, these earlier nationalists said nationalism is about rights can't be a nationalist if you don't like Iranians. Yeah? What this lot are saying is this is all irrelevant. We just have to have this absolute reification of the nation in some way in which you all basically then just do as you're told but you know, we don't believe that actually you should have any, uh, any rights in this. It's what I say at the end of it is basically Iran, Iran without Iranians. Because Iranians are a nuisance. Yeah? We have nationalism, Iranian nationalism without Iranians. And that's what they're trying, you know, they're basically trying to, um, you know, maintain their legitimacy and power. Legitimacy is too strong a term. But maintain their power through the use of something that they know will emote with a, with a younger public. Yes, sir. You've touched on, um, in the, in the, the later, latest period, of the combination between um, religion and um, nationalism. 
Are you and, and your, your presentation focused on national, nationalism as, as essentially a, from, from, from what I saw, a, a secular, uh, a secular movement? Mm-hmm. How does um, how has religion and, and, and um, the role of the clerics play within um, within national movements, and, and, and how was that sort of fostered? Because of course. Um, at least today, one of the one of the distinguishing features of um, Iranian nationalism is its Shi uh, um, identity um, vis-à-vis the rest of the the Arab world, particularly Saudi Arabia. How how historically has um, has that Shi identity played played within within Iranian nationalism, particularly, of course, since you know, the adoption of Shiism by the United States? Well, it's always been there. I mean, the point is, is what they do is they argue that religion and, 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 uh, and Shiism in particular, obviously, is a binding force, and religion is an important aspect of that national identity. So their secular approach is not an irreligious approach. And Tahrizadeh and others very actively said, you don't eliminate religion. You know, this is nonsense. We're not talking about a Turkish model or a French model. This is what I mean, basically, by saying it's an Anglo-Saxon or an Anglo-American <coughs> model, that religion exists, but you distinguish it from the political sphere. Having said that, it has a role. It's later nationalists that start to become quite atheistic, I suppose, in some of their approaches, sometimes on the left, of course. But even there, you've got wonderful hybrids that exist. Earlier on, they say mythologies, religious mythology, these all exist. What they don't want is superstition. They say superstition is holding us back. Okay? And that's, again, it's derivative from a sort of an Enlightenment uh, idea that it's the notion of, quote, the church and all its sins. But religion, in terms of a spiritual, something that's of a spiritual use to the masses, is, is something that is very good. There's a very good, um, all of them almost, uh, draw on Jamal al-Din al-Afghani as, as one of their guys. It's very interesting, because Afghani, of course, is in terms of, depending on who you read, is either an atheist or a pan-Islamist. I don't think he was a pan-Islamist or an atheist. I mean, I think he was, he, he was a bit of an iconoclast. I think, like all of these radical thinkers, he didn't probably know fully what he wanted. He just said pretty obnoxious things when it suited him. But he also said some interesting things. And it, the, for me, the most interesting thing he said, which a lot, of his, a lot of his, certainly his Arab followers didn't take, was the letter he writes to Ernest Renan in response to Renan's sort of very racist take on sort of Semitic religions. And uh, Afghani is very interesting. He debunks the notion of the Arabs as particularly ignorant or this, that, or the other. He debunks the notion of this notion of a Semitic religion. But he's very clear that philosophy is for the elites and religion is for the masses. Now, Afghani is basically taken on by all these religious classes and said, you know, that this shows how everything's about pan-Islamism and everything's about religion and without religion. But Afghani is very clear about it, actually, in his own statements, that, you know, religion has a role, but it's a distinct role, and you keep it in certain... There are spheres of operation. But actually, what we need to do, and he draws this parallel, I mean, Afghani is probably the first one to explicitly relate this sort of notion that what you know, Shiism or Iran needed as a Protestant Reformation, basically. He says, basically, original Islam is like Protestantism, but we've, got, we've gone wrong somewhere. It's, again, this sort of notion of, you know, having something and losing it and then trying to get it back again. So these feed in, and Tahrizad is a big, big supporter of, or, you know, devotee of Afghani. They borrow a lot of their ideas. Of course, the other person who made Afghani very popular, and I don't mention, but he's in the book a lot, is Edward Brown. And Edward Brown is the prominent Persianist in the UK at the time, and he was one that also pushed these ideas. Brown's ideas on religion, by the way, which he pushes a lot, again, we sort of think that he's very pro-Islam, but actually when you, in Lloyd Ridgen, a colleague of mine who works on this much more than I, actually points out that Brown's interest in religion is really to do with Sufism. 
Yeah, it's about mystical religion. He's not actually that pushy on. Uh, most people did not have a good relationship with the ulama in a traditional sense. So religion is there. It's not a. It's not a Franco-Turkish model. It's an Anglo-Saxon model, and religion plays a role in identity, but it's limited. It, it's you know you have to limit it. it Should dominate. Dr. Ansari, for this upcoming Iranian election, what do you think mm. will be the major political issues amongst the Iranians? And do you think we will see another Ahmadinejad? Or can you share it? It's very political. That's a very political question. But what can I do? I'll look at the chair. First of all, I don't think there's going to be an election. I'm not going to dignify it with the term election. Okay, I think there's going to be an appointment. I think they're going to have a, a bit of a net gain. Unless you know something dramatic happens in the economy, they're not going to uh, they're not going to risk what happened last time. So you've got a list of nominees. There are a couple of interesting ones I have to say. I don't know if they'll be allowed to stand, um, but even then, they're fairly safe. Um, and basically, uh, you know, Khamenei will have his man basically whoever he wants if they choose to run it. I mean, they're now saying that they might not run it because Ahmadinejad might spoil it or this that the other. So I think you know, in terms of issues, I think the political elite their principal issues are to retain power. Um, and uh, they're not going to risk it. They just won't risk it in terms... Of, I think what ordinary Iranians want is something quite different, and, and, and this is what Ahmadinejad, in some ways... I mean, this is, this is the hilarity of Toby and I were looking at, you know, since 19... was it, 1991, we started bloody hell. So 1991, you know, looking at this... Uh, uh, and, and, you know, every, every generation, the last hardliner becomes a moderate. And lo and behold, Ahmadinejad has now become a liberal moderate. You know, because he's fighting against, you know, the hard line. You now suddenly Ahmadinejad has become a Democrat. You know, I want free elections and all this. And um, sadly, some of the journalistic community in this country buy this guff. And this is the sort of stuff that comes out. They sort of think something might change and Mashay might be different and so on and so forth. I personally remain very, very sceptical that anything fundamental will change in a state, you know, organised state. What Iranians want, on the other hand, I think is, is probably more interesting. Whether they'll be allowed to express it is, some, is, is something else. Um, and uh, you know, I dare say, what will be critical in this will be the way the economy goes in the next six to eight months, how that develops, and whether they allow a bit of a release in the political tension. But it's it's you know they're well entrenched in that sense. I can't see that there's going to be anything dramatic. Now I will say that because I know I'll be proved wrong. So that's an optimistic statement because whenever I say nothing's going to happen, lo and behold, on June <laughs> the thing will explode. But uh, if I say something will happen, it won't. So I'm going to opt for the fact that nothing is going to happen. Uh, yeah, to, two kind of mini questions. The first one is, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the role of Anjumans as like political societies mm. and gatherings, kind of like impromptu groups. Like Dore. Yeah, yeah. in the 19, like early 1910, 20s, around then. Mm. And the second thing is, um, if you could imagine a future that 2023, oh, yeah. the, the same one you were mentioning. Uh, do you think that there will be a future uh, where people will look back and see the golden era as the time before the Islamic Republic and aspire to go back to that? Or do you think that that is dwindling? Because inevitably, some might say, we're going back to Cyrus, why don't we just go back to where it was in the 70s? And you, there's a lot of people that are like that. Yeah, I don't think you need to wait until 2023. Yeah. It's happening now. But it is happening now. Yes. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of even when I'm teaching, and I mean, this is a wonderful case of how his, all history is contemporary history, really. You know. 
there's a there's a film that the Iranians made, uh, which you must see. I mean, again, it's far too long, but I mean, it's quite. Interesting. And one of them is about Reza Shah, and the other one. Actually, there's three. It's one about the Constitutional Revolution, one about Reza Shah, and one about Mohammad Reza Shah. And all of them have the same tropes in them. So you've got the good cleric. So it's either Modaris or Kashani. I think that's yeah. Those are the two. And then there's the wicked foreigner. Um, normally British, by the way, not American. Okay, uh, Masonic of some sort. The the the, the interesting one, the Reza Shah one, is the Masonic. The, the, the foreigner is, you, you don't actually see the spy. You just see Furuhi and others writing secret letters. Uh, in Mohammed Reza Shah one, you see them. And it, it's wonderful because they, I mean, what they have is obviously shortage of actors or foreign actors in Iran. So in order to distinguish between Europeans, are always distinguished by classical music. <laughs> and then, and, and uh, Europeans are then distinguished by, you know, hello. And Americans are distinguished by hi. Yeah, that's, that's how, so you have this sort of, But what's interesting about all these tropes is you find this, there's this wonderful episode of Reza Shah, which they used to show, you know, it's a pantomime character for Reza Shah, but it's very entertaining and interestingly played. Basically, he's a you know, pantomime villain. And there's the famous, some of you will know, when the, the, the queen is insulted in Rome and he gets on, the, uh, he gets on, the, uh, he gets on his uh, uh, jeep or whatever, he travels down to Rome, he marches into the shrine, and he gets this cleric and he beats the, the hell out of him, okay, with his riding crop. Now, that is traditionally taught, and when I used to start teaching, I said, oh, you know, this goes to show the insensitivity of this man, you know, marching into a shrine, beating up this mullah and whatever. And this is generally how it's presented in the series. But you know for a fact that people are watching it and saying, brilliant. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is, you know, and, and, and that's the miscalculation that the elites have made, in a sense, that people are now looking at that and getting very nostalgic for this. What we used to read and say was you know, what a horrendous, what a vulgar, you know, brutal man he was. Actually, they've, they've presented it, and you watch it, you can get it on, the, the clip is on YouTube, because that's the one clip of the series that got on, of course. And then you put it on YouTube, and he just be, and you, you say, you know that Iranians are saying, Mark, and of course, Reza Shah now is very much uh, hailed. So that nostalgia is, is, is there. It's already there, and even the, the Mohammad Reza Shah as well, by the way. I mean, you can see, I mean, if you, those of you familiar with Manotur TV and stuff, I mean, they've put out quite a, a series of programs which have been quite effective in Iran. Um, now, in terms of Anjumans, I think these are, you know, these are, this is what I really mean by all these Masonic movements, because these lodges, and then they derive into these... And it's, it's very, you know, what you find, what's most interesting about these is how extensive these were, how the same characters seem to pick up, how they exchange these ideas... The Masonic element is really for me to show as a vehicle of how Western ideas came in. But of course the Andromans and others are then used to disseminate these widely. And, you know, even if you look at the coup of 1921, again, you know, the argument is the coup of 1921 was British engineered or facilitated this, that, and the other. What we've now discovered is that Reza Khan actually went to the German embassy to ask for support for the coup in 1916, not in 1921. So he's obviously had the idea. But even there, if you read the text, you'll see that all the coup conspirators... They obviously needed a British support in some ways. But all the coup conspirators were all the people that subsequently ended up in Reza Shah's cabinet. I mean, they brought him, basically. Uh, Teymurtash, Darvad, all these people, you know, they were there. They said, we need to bring an enlightened despot. Who can we find? Oh, he's not bad. Let's get, you know, we need someone to sort of come and do this. And Reza Khan fulfilled that role, but he sort of outstayed his welcome in some ways. They didn't expect him to hang around for too long, you know, in that sense. But these were all part of it. You know, they'd all meet... They conspire, they discuss, and they were very influential. Very influential. I haven't done enough work on that sort of thing, but you know, 
uh, because I've sort of looked a little bit at the earlier period and not so much later, but it, you can see them, you see evidence of it. Right, we have five minutes left, so if there are any more questions, I shall collect all of them together. Oh dear. Uh, if there's just one, uh, that'll be the last question. Two, any bits on two, higher than two, mm. to, so, sir, you first and then you. We are really distinguished between nationalism and nationalization. Uh, nationalization in terms of like the oil industry. Oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah so absolutely. You can't answer that yet. Okay, so yeah, well, that, <laughs> I would, yeah. There's another question over here. No? Uh, yes, yeah, so just uh, going back to what you were saying with the leader, Shah, you said that he transitioned from, I guess, ruling by law, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, yeah. to like having this ethical obligation to the people. And I'm wondering, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm just like, could you clarify that a little yeah, bit yeah, yeah, in yeah. terms of what the enlightened despot is supposed to do? Isn't that somewhat integrated with having like this ethical obligation to people? No, you see, the thing is, enlightened despotism, you see, when you go back to the 18th century, and, um, you know, the, the great uh, writer on these sort of mirrors of princes at the time is Voltaire. So Voltaire talks about um, Charles XII of Sweden and Peter the Great. And Peter the Great's the model, by the way, for Iran, not Napoleon, sadly. So what you have is, um, um, they say, what distinguishes a despot from an enlightened despot? the law. So all these kings that were civilised or gave a sort of civilised Louis the Fourteenth, Peter the Great, who was, you know, an SOB of the first rate, to be honest, but there you are, because he provided law. So therefore he's good. Charles XII isn't. He was a feat, he wasted. And Voltaire sort of takes this, this argument and he sort of says that this is what distinguishes and these, you know, in, in, a, in our republic of laws, we're not talking about necessarily like an American republic, a republic of laws could be a constitutional monarchy. Okay, that's their conception of it. And I, again, it's in the book, is in more detail. So what they, they look at is they take these ideas and they say, yes, a constitutional system which restricts the power of the autocrat is, in our sense, a republic of laws because it is based on a legal system of legal restriction. But we haven't really been able to set up good government to begin with because we don't have the capacity. We need someone to weld this country together. This is what an enlightened despot can do. And historically, the role of enlightened despots, sort of like theoretically anyway, is that basically they come, they establish things, and they make themselves irrelevant. Why? Because you end up building the state that is then depersonalised. So the state begins in this sort of person, and then he sort of builds this bureaucracy and these bureaucrats, and they basically get on with it. And effectively, you know, you get like the monarch in this country, or you know, basically like the Americans, you turf them out, or whatever. You know, so it becomes surplus to requirements, and that was basically the argument that Reza Shah needed to come to give this country a kick up the backside, sort it out. Now, in terms of the transition between the two, what Reza Shah does is he builds. He doesn't do it. Darvad does it, and other people do it, but he facilitates the building of a judiciary. And illegal, and it's, it's fascinating to look at in detail how they do it, because they start from nothing. They have no lawyers, they have no laws, they have no judges. They, what do you do? The problem with the Reza Shah period is it only fulfills half the equation. That is, they, they provide the rights of the state, but they don't get round to enshrining the rights of the citizen, you know, in terms of... Yeah? Do you see what I mean? To, 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 and that's the problem. Muhammad Reza Shah doesn't fulfill this, for one reason or another, and this is you know, when you look at the Status of Forces Convention of 1964 with the Americans, instead he says, yeah, you Americans can all have extraterritorial rights. His proper answer should have been, yes, we will revise our legal system to make sure that you can trust it. And that's, you know, which is what Reza Shah did in 1927. So, 
he doesn't do that. Instead, he develops, and I found three texts that develop on Pahlaviism under Muhammad And there's one book that's called Religious, I think it's Religious Constitutional Monarchy. Now, this is not actually, you don't have religious constitutional monarchy, you have constitutional monarchy. The religious bit isn't there, but you can see where he's trying to get at, and he sort of talks about this esoteric stuff and whatever. And then the best bit is this, um, um, I think it's Shahan Shahir Artifi. I'd welcome Iranian friends can tell me actually what, how, what hukumate artifi means really. But you know, I sort of translated it almost as sentimental or you know, empathetic monarchy. You know, and when you look at it and what he says, he says that basically, you know, I'm not restricted by any laws. I'm restricted by ethics. And I'm restricted by ethics that I define, which is very helpful, right? And uh, you know, but now in the hands of a good person, that might be marvellous, you know, but you can see how this might get out of hand. And it's quite distinct from what goes on earlier. Uh, Mahmoud Azhar just says no. And if you look at his book on Towards the Great Civilization, where he talks about the meaning of monarchy, it's a very, very woolly reading of it. You know, he says, Iranian monarchy is all about a spiritual connection between the king and his people. Um, I am the father, and they love me, and, you know, all this... You know, you can't even imagine Reza Shah talking like that. You know, he said, I don't care if they love me. You know, I mean, it, it's, a different, it's a different type of mentality. And I think that's the problem, that what he does is he doesn't fulfill the institutional basis of the state. And it's, it's a wonderful argument, dare I say, if I don't want to sort of like praise him too much, but it's, you know, Huntington's book on... Uh, his first, not his Clash of Civilizations, the first one on the, the order and the... Political order. You know, he says this very clearly there, and it's quite interesting. He says it's about institution building. He says we Americans, when we give aid to people, we don't we think of aid in economic terms. We think of development in economic terms because we inherited all our institutions from England. Yeah, but what we need to think about is governance and institution building, and they mean law. If you look at the, the there's a statistic for the number of lawyers in Iran in the 1970s. It's pitiful. I mean, I know everyone says there's far too many lawyers in America and so on and so forth, but you know. I have to say, for a league, you know, there weren't enough technicians to run it in Iran. I think the total number of lawyers in Iran was something like three and a half thousand in 1973, 74. And most of them actually spent most of their time trying to find a way around the system, not, you know, not work, work the system. And this was the problem. And of course, now it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's nothing really. I mean, now it's even worse. So these are the things that for me were very interesting is this, you know, why didn't they fulfill that project? And we're living with that, with that consequence. Um, I, know about national, I do think nationalisation and nationalism are, are, are different. Obviously, one is a process of nationalising various assets and stuff, but it can be based in, obviously, nationalistic trends. But just to give you a, a very... It was a very interesting, if you look at Razmara and Mossad there, or you look at Ebtahaj. Ebtahaj, I think, was a fantastic nationalist. He broke the British Imperial Bank of Persia, but he didn't do it in quite such a dramatic way. But he did it very effectively. And Razmara also, who was assassinated for his illness, is very interesting, because... When he, and nobody, everyone ignores him because they shot him. So he carefully knifed him, I can't remember which one. But his ideas actually about the state were very interesting, and it was all about decentralising power. But we haven't got time to go. And we haven't got time to go in that, sorry. Right, Um, before we thank uh, Ali, I've got two announcements. Firstly, um, after this excellent lecture, two of the smartest people I know, Stefan Hertog and Giacomo Luciani, are speaking on Thursday uh, at 6.30 on the politics of business in the Middle East after the hour of screen, so I highly commend you to that. Mm-hmm. Secondly, 
I've been lucky enough to have this book for two weeks, so I've already read it, read it and I think it's actually brilliant at its best to date. So I highly recommend you buy it for the knockdown price of £15, <laughs> a bargain if ever I've heard of one. And finally, thank you, uh, Professor Sarah Christelin. So one part, for all of you here that uh, know about this, I wish you all a very, very happy new year on Wednesday. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. Thank you.